together to the book of Acts, chapter 22. You'll recall last week we were continuing in the story of Paul in Jerusalem as he was in the temple conducting the vow and assisting those who had taken a vow. And a great disturbance broke out. And Paul was very nearly killed, saved only at the last moment by the Romans. And you'll recall where we ended. Paul was just about to speak in his defense. And so our text this morning will be from chapter 21, verse 37, to chapter 22, verse 29. It's a long text. But considering that Paul dealt with all of this in a mere span of a few minutes, it's hard to break it up. So let's turn together to God's Word. Acts chapter 21, beginning at verse 37. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon the reading of His Word. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would attend Your Word with power that you would not only teach us from it, Lord, but you would change us by it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts, chapter 21, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, 
and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, They themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and sufficient word. You know, as we read through a book like Acts, it is almost impossible not to get caught up in the sweep of the story, isn't it? Acts is perhaps one of the best examples in the scriptures of how God is at work in redemptive history. This is the story of the church springing up by the power of the Holy Spirit from a very few to being a force throughout the known world, a force that even gets the attention of Roman governors and emperors. This is very exciting for us to see how the church is triumphant, to see how God is at work in the lives of people, how He is building for Himself a people. But there is one danger that we can face in that. We can get so wrapped up in the big picture that we miss the individual story. That's what our text is about 
this morning. You see, while there is indeed much that is grand and helpful in the great sweep of redemptive history, we have to remember that that great sweep is made up, that big story is made up of a thousand, a million little stories. God is not just at work in a vague and large way. God is at work in the lives of individual people. We're going to hear such a story this morning. It's the story of the Apostle Paul. This is the second time we have heard this story. It'll be the first time in the first person. In Acts chapter 9, we heard the story as it was recounted. We will hear this story again in Acts chapter 26. That's how important it is to remember that God can change anyone. And that God does change anyone. Well, let's look then at Paul's story. And as we look at this story, I would ask you not to just stand as an observer. Not to just look at Paul, but I want you to ask yourself this question. Is Paul's story my story? Is what God did in Paul's life what God is doing in my life? And do you desire that? Do you pray for that? Well, let's look then at the threefold tale of the conversion of a Christian. First, we will see Paul describe who I was. For the Christian story always begins with who I was. And then we will see how I was changed. Paul will tell us how he was changed by the power of God. This is the story of every testimony. I was but God. But your story doesn't end there. Because you see, once you have come to know the living Savior, once you have come to know the risen Jesus Christ, the next question we must ask ourselves is, what must I do? What must I do in response to this great salvation? Who I was, how I was changed, and what I must do. Well, who is this Paul, this Saul? The first thing that we notice about Paul is that he was a very confident person. I want you to think back to the story that we have been through in the book of Acts and remember Paul's background. Paul was a member, you may recall, of the Sanhedrin, the ruling elders of the Jewish nation. He was amongst perhaps the youngest of these leaders of the Sanhedrin. He was a man whose star was on the rise. He was trusted by the chief priest. He was trusted by the elders. He was the one who debated Stephen, we believe. He was a man on the move. He was a first-rate intellectual. We see that even after his conversion, how he goes into Athens the philosophy center of the time, and he begins to speak to them on their terms. Now, I want you to imagine this. You may recall we talked about Athens being like the Harvard or Yale of the time. That is one thing, but I want you to imagine that it is not an English or an American university, but perhaps a South American university or a Russian university. And you not only have to deal with them on an intellectual level, but on a completely different cultural level. Paul handled himself quite easily. 
Paul was confident. Before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, there was nothing that he couldn't do. And I think in God's kind providence that this is a great help to us because doesn't that describe Americans? We're constantly referring to ourselves as pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. There's nothing that we can't do. There's no place that we can't go. This is the story of our history. It is in our blood. And unless we are careful, that confidence takes us over. And we think there's nothing that we can't do and we don't need God to do it. That's who Paul was. But at times, that's who we are as well. Paul was a man who was comfortable in many worlds. We see that here in this text. He speaks to the tribune in Greek. He knows Roman law. And then he speaks in Hebrew to the Jews. He is a man of all seasons. But Paul was not only a confident man, he was also a comfortable man. And by that, he was well-trained. He was secure in who he was. We see that from the way he describes these formative influences. He was born in the city of Tarsus. Now, you have to recall that Tarsus is one of the top three or four cities in that region of Asia. It was a wealthy city. It was a powerful city where there were actual Roman citizens, like Paul's father. It was a city of many universities. It was not second rate by any stretch of the imagination. But even as good as Tarsus and its school system was, Paul's father had something even better for Paul. He sent him down to Jerusalem to be trained up by the best of the best of the best. He sent him down to Gamaliel, the most famous rabbi of his day. Now, I want you to imagine, perhaps I can put this in a little bit of modern color for you parents especially. Let's say that you had the opportunity to send your young son or daughter off for daily intensive training for 10 years with R.C. Sproul. Your child goes and will learn theology from Sproul. And then, perhaps, learn a bit of preaching and teaching from John Piper and Sinclair Ferguson. And maybe learn organization from Al Mahler. All of the leading lights of our reformed world. That's who Gamaliel was. There was no better religious niche teacher in the world. You could see how Paul could be comfortable with his up, upbringing. And again, in kind providence, I think that describes many of us here today. How many of us here today grew up in the church, have gone to more VBSs than we can imagine, taken Sunday school from the time when we could talk, listened to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons, you see, there is a sense, too, in which we can be comfortable with who we are. Paul certainly was. Paul was also the great beneficiary of being Jewish. Now, in Acts, we've gotten to see the Jews as being the opponents of Christianity, but you have to remember, before the cross, being Jewish was the best blessing you could possibly have. 
Paul describes it for us in other places. In Romans 3, he says, it was to the Jews that God gave his word. He didn't give his word to the Greeks. He didn't give his word to the Romans. It was to the Jews that God gave the covenants. Worship. His promises. The patriarchs. You see, the Jews were a great beneficiary of all that God had to give. And Paul describes, he says, that was all mine. You remember in Philippians 3, he says, if we're going to boast in the flesh, I'll one-up you all day long. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the right day. I memorized the law. I was a Pharisee. I did everything that you were supposed to do. But there was one last thing that Paul was. He was confident. He was comfortable. But most importantly, he was lost. We see that here from his testimony. He says that he taught, he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. He was lost. He did not have Jesus. He was focused upon the things that this mob is focused upon. Just as they are breathing out threats of murder upon him, so murder filled his heart. He thought he knew it all. But really he was missing the most important thing. He was what he would later describe as being blind. He says, I was zealous for God, but that zeal was without knowledge. You see, it is not enough to be on fire. It is what you are on fire for. It is not enough to know things. It is what and who you know. You see, Paul had every advantage you could possibly want, and he was as lost as you could possibly be. We too can be tempted like Paul to rest in results, to rest in our knowledge. But you see... Paul was lost, and it made him a very, very angry man. So angry that he persecuted the church, so angry that he did not even stand by a societal distinction between men and women. He killed them all. He arrested them all. He had no mercy on anyone. This is how blind and lost Paul was. Do you find yourself being angry? Do you find yourself being frustrated with your lot in life? If you do, there is only one place where that anger will go away. There's only one place you can find comfort. There's only one place you can find hope and purpose. It's the same place that Paul found it. Because you see... That was who Paul was. Tenses are important in grammar, aren't they, kids, as we learn them? Was is a past tense. It's not who Paul is now. Because, you see, Paul was changed. He was all of these things, but he was changed as he went on that road to Damascus. 
as we see here in verse 6, he was, he was on his way and he drew near to Damascus and about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around him. He fell to the ground and he heard the voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul was changed. But I want you to notice first how Paul is changed. Paul didn't prepare himself for God. Paul didn't spend weeks or nights or months in agony on his knees begging God to somehow show him Jesus. Paul was on his way to kill followers of Jesus. But even that can't stop God. When God wants to get a hold of you, it doesn't matter what your history. It doesn't matter what your baggage. It doesn't matter what you have done It doesn't matter what you have thought. When God wants to get a hold of you, God breaks in. Isn't that gracious of Him? Have you been tempted to think that there's no hope because of what you've done? Do you tend to think, I don't know if I'm ready for Jesus. I don't know if I'm ready to hear His voice and to obey Him. Paul is here as... Example number one to tell you that God is in charge of salvation. If you're at the end of your rope, don't worry. That's right where God wants you. He doesn't need your help in any part of salvation. Not in bringing you to Jesus Christ, not in growing you up in grace. God, by His grace and by His Spirit, empowers you. This is the work of God. It is the work that He makes upon enemies like Paul. It is a work that is very specific. It is not just some general call. I wish there was someone traveling on the road to Damascus who'd possibly believe in me today. No. What does our Lord say? Does He say, Hey you, why are you persecuting me? Is there anyone in the party who wants to persecute me? No, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Very specific. That's how our Lord Jesus Christ calls to himself a people. Isaiah tells us that the names of his people are engraved on the palms of his hands. God knows each and every one of his people. The Lord Jesus Christ died to redeem each and every one of His people. God breaks in to change Paul. And we see that Paul is changed because Jesus changes him. Jesus changes first his thinking. Paul is changed in how he thinks about Jesus. We might imagine as Paul was riding on the road to Damascus, as he went by Calvary, He might have looked up at that hill and said, Oh, you pretender. You usurper. We're going to wipe out all of your followers now. Just you wait and see how worthless your efforts were. And yet just a short time later, he says, Lord. He's ready to obey Jesus. His thinking about Jesus has turned 180 degrees from one who mocks, from one who opposes, 
to one who knows that he is under the control of a sovereign king, to one who knows that Jesus is Lord. Is that how you think about Jesus? Because you see, Jesus is not just an escape hatch. Jesus is not something you take care of in your past so you don't have to go to hell. Jesus is the one who is sovereign over your life. Jesus is the one that you place everything you have in His hands. Your hopes, your dreams, your life, your family, your job, your finances, your nation. You place it all in His hands because He is Lord. But it doesn't end there because Jesus changes Paul's thinking not just about himself but about everything else. After he meets Jesus, Saul is out of a job. He can no longer be the jailer for the chief high priest. He is taking on an entirely different view of the world. Everything he knew was wrong. He understands now the law in its fullness. He understands the purpose of the people of Israel. He understands hope for the Gentiles. He understands the building of the church. Everything has changed because of Jesus. So again I ask you, is that true of you? Has everything in your life been touched and changed by Jesus? Does it change the way you view marriage? The way you view parenting. The way you view school. The way you view friendships. Work. Your duties as a citizen. As a church member. As a neighbor. As a friend. Everything changes because of Jesus. Everything is brought into proper perspective. Because you see, it is only by redemption, it is only by the forgiveness of sins that the effects of the fall can be put right. That horrible fall in which we were bent, marred, destroyed in mind, in emotions, and in will. Jesus sets all of those things right. He changes us. He changes the way we think, but for Paul and for us, he also changes our direction as well. And in Paul's case, that's literally true. Paul is going north, and he's turned around to go south to Jerusalem. Paul was headed down a path of murder and hatred. He was headed down a path of sin and destruction. And Jesus turned him around to a path of building up, of saving, of healing. Are you headed down a wrong path today? You see, because if you profess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you confess that He has changed the way you think about Him, that He has changed the way that you think about everything else, then you have to be on the path that Jesus will put you on. That means you cannot be on the path of dishonesty. You cannot be on the path of anger. You cannot be on the path of hatred. You cannot be on the path of selfishness. You must be on the path that Jesus has gone before you on. Your direction needs to be changed. The last way in which Paul reminds us 
that he was changed is another way that is very difficult for Americans to grasp. Do you recall that I said that we are very confident as a people? We like to be self-supporting. We like to be optimistic. We're proud of who we are. We're proud of our families. We're proud of our church. We're proud of what we're doing. But you see, one of the key ways to be changed is to be humbled, is to give up some of that pride. Paul was humbled in the most obvious of ways. Here is a man breathing out threats of murder who is in control of a force that is deadly and he is in the middle of the daytime struck blind and he has to be led around by the hand like a four or five year old. It's a bit humbling, isn't it? Could you imagine that? He's made helpless. He's made to look beyond himself. He can't even take a step by himself anymore. He is being reminded that he is at the mercy of God. That God in His providence is completely in control. And you see, God does this to us. You see, when we wonder, why did God bring this sickness into my family? Why did God take that job from me? Why do we have to move? Why can't we get the things that we need or want? You see, oftentimes that is God's way of humbling us so that we look to Him. He humbles us that He might raise us up. And so Paul goes from a blind man being led by the hand to being missionary and church planter extraordinaire. All by the power of the living God. Are you ready to be humbled this morning? Because you see, I think and the Bible speaks of it over and over again, that the thing that keeps us from Jesus most is pride. We don't want to admit we don't have it all together. We don't want to admit that we're not right all the time. We don't want to admit that we need God. We don't want to admit that we need forgiveness. We look at others and we see their sin is worse than ours. We look at others and their knowledge is less than ours. You see... Pride stands in the way of you and Jesus. And not just when Jesus first calls you to himself. It is a struggle throughout all of the Christian life. To put aside self, to put others before us, and to follow Jesus. To serve rather than to be served. This is how Paul was changed. It is a change that is beyond anything that anyone around him could have imagined. But it was nothing for King Jesus. Paul was changed, but you'll note that Paul's life didn't end there. God didn't send a, a fiery chariot like he did for Elijah to come and swing up Paul. And take him off to his heavenly reward because he had been converted. No, Paul lived a tough life after this. A life of obedience. You see, Paul then begins to describe for them and for us what he must do. And the very first thing that he must do is accept 
the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you find it interesting that as this light comes down and blinds Saul, that his very first words are, Who are you, Lord? He doesn't know who Jesus is. But the power is so great, the change is so affecting, that he already acknowledges Jesus as his Lord. And this is something that would mark the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, it would have its dips and rises, but the Christian life is about acknowledging that Jesus is sovereign. And so we see it here in a situation where Paul goes back to Jerusalem and he is in a trance praying. We see this in verse 17. And he is told to make haste and to get out of the city. And I guess Paul hasn't quite had enough of the school of hard knocks yet to know that when Jesus tells you something, it's in your best interest to listen. Because first of all, you can't fight against King Jesus. And secondly, it's for your own good. And so Paul looks up at our Lord and he says, Well, but you know, I think it would be a good idea if I stayed here in Jerusalem. He says, You know, everyone here knows what a bad guy I was. And now when they see what kind of change has come up under me, I think it'll be for conversions everywhere. Jesus speaks again to him, strongly. He says, go, for I will send you afar off to the Gentiles. You see, Paul initially resists, but he realizes that Jesus is sovereign over his life, that Jesus knows what he is doing, and he obeys. So I ask you this question. When Jesus says go, do you go? It might not be a physical place. It might be a place that you don't want to go. The kind of place that you make up excuses because you just don't want to go there. You don't want to talk to that person. You don't want to do that job. Jesus says go. He's sovereign. Paul not only accepts Jesus' sovereignty, but he accepts the call. He accepts this call of go to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to just briefly think about how difficult this must have been. It is a strange call. Why Paul of all people? Paul is the Hebrew of Hebrews. He spent his whole life staying away from Gentiles so they wouldn't contaminate him. He knows how to talk to Pharisees. He knows the law and the Talmud. Why send such a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, to the Gentiles? It would be a hard call because Paul would not be used to their customs, their dress, their food. He probably would shudder to think of the things that he would have to talk about and the people he would have to meet. Imagine now if you heard a call from the Lord Jesus Christ to go and to be a missionary among the Taliban. That's what it was like. Gentiles were the enemy. 
They were the ones that the Jews fought against. They were the ones who weren't worthy of the gospel. Weren't worthy of God. And yet, Jesus calls Paul to this strange, hard mission against everything that he knew, against everything that he desired. And Paul has been so changed that he obeyed. This tells us something else. Not only are we to be exhorted to go and to do things that Jesus tells us, but it tells us that Jesus empowers us to do them. Those places you don't want to go, Jesus will give you grace to go there. Those things that you don't want to do, Jesus will give you grace to do them. Jesus doesn't leave you to your own devices. He is the one who changes. He is the one who empowers. What's the last thing that Paul must do? Paul has accepted Jesus as his Lord. He has accepted the call, the missional call from Jesus. And then finally we see in this last vignette that Paul trusts in Jesus every day. Even this day, even as hard of a day as this, he trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a great contrast from others around him. Imagine the scene. Paul has almost been beaten to death. He's been dragged out of the temple. The temple doors have been closed and locked. The Roman guard comes down with clanging of swords and spears and armor. They clear the area with clubs and sword butts. People are yelling and screaming, throwing dirt. They have to carry Paul above their heads to get him to safety. Paul finally gets a breath and he says, could I please speak for a moment? And he begins to lay out the grace of God. And when these groups hear of the grace of God, they react so differently than the one who trusts in Jesus. The Jews react with anger. They've had enough. And the scene is actually very similar to the scene with Stephen. They throw off their cloaks to get ready to stone him. They say, kill him now. Don't let him say another word. We don't want to hear anything else about this Jesus or these Gentiles. Their hatred for the Gentiles is all-consuming. You see, if if we're not careful, that kind of hatred... That kind of sin can be all-consuming to us. Because it's true of so many around us. As we're bombarded with negative thoughts and images. Bombarded with hatred and anger. But there's another group here. The group of the Romans. And they are confused by what is going on. You see, they don't speak Hebrew. And the Roman tribune says, Well, the only way I'm going to get an answer to this is... We're going to have to flog this man. Now, you have to realize what is being done here is they are going to use a specific Roman weapon. It is a whip with leather thongs and shards of glass or small stones in the thongs. Many people died from this kind of beating. If they didn't die, they were usually crippled. And they're so confused by what's going on, they're willing to deal out punishment and death. But in the midst of all of this, you can imagine they've got the the 
whips at the ready. Big burly men are warming up. Other big burly men are taking Paul's arms and they're stretching him out as far as he can stretch. His muscles are tight to cause them more pain. And Paul looks in much the same way that he asks, may I say something? He says, excuse me, is this what you do to a Roman citizen? Can you imagine the calm? Can you imagine the control? He's not crying like a baby. I think I would be. He's not screaming at the top of his lungs. Because you see, it is not because Paul has some kind of superhuman courage. It's because unlike the Jews and unlike the Romans, Paul has complete trust in Jesus. He knows that even if he is not delivered from these whips, Jesus is still the Lord of his life. Jesus has still redeemed him from death and sin. Do you have that kind of trust in Jesus? Is Jesus for you the answer to every problem? That no matter what problem comes up, it's not too big for Jesus. You see, this is the story of someone who was a miserable, rotten sinner. And who was changed by the power of the risen Christ. And who went on to serve Him and trust Him because of who He is. That's Paul's story. Is that your story? If it isn't, then I ask you this morning to search the Scriptures, to know who Jesus is, to give Him your life, to find hope in Him. And if this is your Jesus, then I encourage you to trust Him today and more tomorrow and more the next day because Jesus is the one who changes. Jesus is in control. Not just Paul's life, but yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would remind us of all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have hope because of you. That we are changed because of you. Oh Lord, be our stay. Be our God. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.